So good morning, listeners, and welcome to Come and See Inspirations. And it's the 13th of August. It's the 19th Sunday in Ordinary Time. My name is John Keeley, and as usual, I'm joined by my trusted colleague, the fellow who's taken after, who's looking after me all these years. Shan Ambrose, how are you? <laughs> how are we doing, John? I have to say, plum is never date. Well, well you as know. We say in English, as we say in English, well, you know, flash reel gets you everywhere. <laughs> thanks, any, <laughs> thanks anyway, Shane, for, for joining me. And of course, I know Shane will join me in uh, as well, welcoming our listeners who are housebound and lonely and struggling in some way today. And our listeners as well who support us each week in prayer. It's important for us to mention that every week because we do want to ensure that we're not forgetting those of our listeners who who are housebound and who are lonely and who are struggling. And thanks a lot indeed for joining us. Our weekly podcast does include interviews on faith topics, inspirational music and reflection on the Sunday Gospel. All of our podcasts can be heard at comeandseeinspirations.budgepad.com. Just Google Come and See Inspirations, you'll find us there. Sacredspace102.blogspot.com. That's our blog started off by Shane way back in 2010, where we have all of our recordings from that date, going to write you up to 2018 and 19, I think it is. We also are available to be heard at Spotify, iTunes, and we do have a presence on Facebook, Come and See Inspirations. If you want to contact us, please do so. Come and see inspirations at gmail.com is our email. That's come and see inspirations at gmail.com. And please, again, just share with us any thoughts you might have either on the podcast or on uh, topics that we cover. Maybe there's new topics you'd like us to cover, some music, or indeed you might even want to come on and share with us on our podcast itself. Just email us, come and see inspirations at gmail.com. So now we'll hand over to Shane, who will share some saints for the week. Thanks, Shane. Right, John. So it's the 19th week in ordinary time. So for those of us praying the Psalter, we're on week three. Uh, Monday, the 14th of August, is the feast day of St. Maximilian Kolbe. Now, I always kind of... It's, Maximilian Kolbe is one of the saints I feel is a small bit short-changed because he doesn't get a full feast day because, obviously, with the 15th being the feast of the, of the Solemnity of the Assumption, and he only gets half a feast day. But anyway, I don't think Maximilian himself would have minded too much being a very humble man that he was. But of course, Maximilian Kolbe is, is a martyr for the faith. And he is remembered, of course, as one of the martyrs of Auschwitz, uh, prisoner 16670. Um, on the 28th of May, 1941, he was transferred to the Auschwitz concentration camp. And he's... Basically, he was assigned to a special work group staffed by priests and supervised by vicious guards. And his calm determination basically um, led to him them picking on him in particular. Uh, in July 1941, there was an escape from the camp. And the camp protocol was that 10 men would be killed in retribution for each escaped prisoner. Francis uh, Gajanczyk, a married man with young children was chosen to die for the escape, and Maximilian volunteered to take his place and died as he had always wished. Um, now, the interesting thing, of course, was they, they were put into a, a room or a block where they basically starved to death, and his was one of the last to die. And it was taking too long, um, so they they sent in someone to um, in to inflict or uh, inject. Uh, carbolic acid into their veins and he said to put out his hand and smiled as the man did it to him uh, after they did that after three weeks of starvation and dehydration his body was burned in the ovens and the ashes were scattered scattered so there isn't any relics as such of him he was canonized in 1982 by john paul ii and he was declared a martyr of charity as opposed to someone who died in odium fide in the you know in, uh, so that's Maximilian Kolbe on the 14th of August. 15th of August, obviously, of course, is the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary and honours the fullness of blessedness that was her destiny, the glorification of her mortal soul and virginal body that completely conformed her to the risen Christ. And that's as that is taken from Marialis Cultus, which is the apostolic uh, exhortation in relation to this particular feast day. Um, obviously, of course, it is one of the doc Marian dogmas of the Church proclaimed by Pius XII after the Marian year in 1955. 
and that Mary was assumed body and soul into heaven after experiencing death. We don't know whether or not she was decayed. That church has never given an opinion on that. Um, now, while the Catholic Church takes a particular view in relation to the Assumption, uh, our colleagues and brethren in the Orthodox Church celebrate the Dormition, which is the falling asleep of the Virgin. Uh, it's, there's a slight nuance in terms of it from a, techno, from a theological point of view. They're not quite the same, but they're very similar. The 16th of August is the feast day of St. Stephen of Hungary, who died at 1038. He was the first king of Hungary and its patron saint, worked for the conversion of his people to Christianity. Now, one of the interesting things about St. Stephen, John, um, take a guess as to what his relic might be. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's certainly not his hair, anyway. No, uh, but you're not too far off it. It's the holy right hand of King Stephen I, king of Hungary. It's regarded as a Hungarian national relic, Ooh. as well as being a church relic. So because Stephen was the king that basically established Hungary as a kingdom. Um, and it's, 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 his coronation took place around 1021 on Christmas Day. And his naturally mummified right hand is one of the most significant Hungarian national relics, uh, which was found when his grave was opened in 1083. And it's 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 been around a while. It's still around, um, uh, and it was obviously part of the um, regalia of the of the Hungarian kings, which obviously became then the, the emperors of Austria. Uh, but it's it's kept by the it's it's still around, and you you can actually see it um, in still in Hungary to the present day. Um, so it's. I can't remember actually the name of where it actually is. I need to, I forgot to check that. I'll have to come back to you on that one. But anyway, that's St. Stephen of Hungary, whose feast day we celebrate on the 16th of August. So then, John, on the 17th, actually from an Irish point of view, which is slightly different to the universal character car calendar even, 17th of August in Ireland is the feast day of Our Lady of Knock. Now, technically, the apparition of Knock occurred on the 22nd of August. The 22nd of August is the feast of the Solemnity of the Queenship of Mary, and it's a universal feast, so we couldn't exactly move that off the calendar. So when they were reorganizing the Irish liturgical calendar a number of years ago, the closest date that they could give for the apparition, or for the feast day of Our Lady of Knock, was the 17th of August. So that's why we celebrate the feast day of Our Lady of Knock on the 17th of August, which is obviously very different to everybody else, and it falls obviously in the middle of the novena, which is from the 14th to the 22nd. And as it happens, there's a friend of the podcast giving her talks on the 17th of August, which is um, Noreen Lynch. That's right. So Noreen's giving the talks in, in Knock on that particular day as well. The 18th is the feast day of St. Macarius, the wonder worker. I've gone a bit farther afield. She's a, he is a 9th century saint of Constantinople, born originally named Christopher. He died in 850. Um, he is regarded as a martyr, I think. <laughs> no, he's just, a, he's just a monk. Sorry, he's a, he's a saint and miracle worker. He was imprisoned and tortured for his opposition to Emperor Leo's orders for the destruction of the icons. He was released by Emperor Michael the Stammerer and then exiled for his continued support of the icons as part of the whole controversy around icons in the 8th, 7th, 8th, 9th century. So that's uh, St. Macarius, the wonder worker, whose feast day we celebrate on the 18th of August. And then finally, John, on the 19th of August, Saturday, is the feast day of St. John Oudes, who died in 1618. French saint, uh, originally part of the French oratory, but left to found the, uh, to, to work on a congregation to improve the standards of the clergy in seminaries. He founded also the Sisters of Our Lady of Charity and Refuge. One of the things that John is, is remembered for is actually he was one of the first to promote the devotion to the Sacred Heart. So that's St. John Oud, whose feast day we celebrate in 1618. Maybe just as a, a, a reminder again, as you just mentioned there, Nock, the Novena to a Lady of Nock um, starts again tomorrow, the 14th of August until the 22nd. Uh, its, theme day, its, its theme this year is Caring for Creation. Then the 17th. Uh, we have our good friend Noreen Lynch sharing a reflection with us. Uh, actually, on Saturday, 
our good friend Julian Moran, the General Secretary of the Synodal Pathway, uh, is speaking on the topic, the Synod, are we there yet? So now we can go for our prayer space. Today we can listen to Father Flann Lynch as he again leads us into the Abundance Prayer. Welcome. It's good to have different ways of praying. Here's a way that you may enjoy. It's called the Abundance Prayer. Let's do it together. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hold our hands in this position, relaxed. Now we concentrate on the unlimited power of love we have in our hands. Now we use it. And with the backs of our hands, we push out all the negative influences, all the fear, worry and anxiety, the anger, impatience and resentment, the greed, selfishness and envy. We've created sacred space between our hands, in our minds and in our hearts. Sacred space for the love in us to flow to anyone or anything we want to pray for. Sacred space, too, for Jesus to do whatever is necessary. We're not so much doing something here as allowing something really remarkable to happen. As we become one with Jesus in his great love for the world and in his great prayer for the world. We smile in our hearts at the miracle that is taking place. We can do this at any time. Uh, We can do it standing up or sitting down, whenever a need arises. We just hold our hands like this. Uh, We concentrate on the unlimited power of love and we create the sacred space. And then we allow the love to flow and we allow Jesus to take over. And we're replacing fear, worry and anxiety with a great flow of love. That's the great power in this prayer. We can do it sitting down and what we do then is we just create the sacred space, hands facing each other, relax the hands, the thumbs, and then drop your shoulders, smile in your heart, and allow the love to flow. Allow yourself to be one with Jesus in his great love for the world and in his great prayer for the world. And when we decide to finish, we offer this little prayer. I thank you, Lord, for the wonder of my being and that of every person and the miracle of your presence in me and in every person. And then we join our hands in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you. Welcome back to part two of this week's podcast here on Come and See Inspirations. So on this week's podcast, we are going to share um, a podcast that we, we came across from Word on Fire. Now, as people are aware, uh, here on Come and See Inspirations, myself and John, we're big fans of Word on Fire with Bishop Robert Barron and the team over there. Yeah. Highly recommend you check out their website and the Word on Fire Institute and their weekly podcasts. This one that we want to share with you this week, it looks at why modern men look elsewhere for spiritual wisdom. And it follows up on an article in the Gospel Coalition titled Saviour or Stoics? Why Modern Men Look for Spiritual Wisdom Outside the Church. And it looks at how the, uh, the author observes how a growing number of young men are filling a moral and spiritual void in their lives by turning to modern self-help books, which are based on the ancient Stoic thinkers. Uh, this would include authors such as Jordan Peterson, for example, Ryan Holiday, Men, people, Jordan Peterson in particular would be known or heard of on, on the, this side of the pond, particularly in Ireland, where thousands turned up to hear him speak at Point Theatre in Dublin a number of years ago. So it's asking the question, why is it so appealing to many young men today and what lessons might Christians learn from this development? 
which is what Bishop Brenda, what Bishop, Bishop Barron and Brendan Brandon both discuss on this episode from the Word of Fire show. Well, today I want to talk about a recent article that was published over at the website, The Gospel Coalition. It was written by a man named Shane Morris, and it was titled, Savior or Stoic? Why Modern Men Look for Wisdom Outside the Church. In this article, Morris observes that a growing number of young men are filling a moral and spiritual void in their lives by turning to modern self-help books based on ancient Stoic thinkers such as Marcus Aurelius, Seneca, and Epictetus. Now, we've done an episode in the past on Stoicism and Christianity. That was episode 219, where we compared those two worldviews. But in this discussion, I'd specifically like to focus on why Stoicism has become so appealing to many young men today and what lessons we might learn from this dynamic. So let me ask you something you've raised many times. Why has it been that contemporary Christianity has failed, by and large, to reach young men. We're facing attrition across the board. You and I talk about it all the time, but we do seem to do somewhat better with young women than young men. Why is that? Why do we have such difficulty engaging young men? We haven't made it hard and challenging. Uh, I agree with uh, Jordan Peterson. When he and I had a conversation, oh, probably a couple years ago now, uh, he made that point. And, you know, I came of age in the period after Vatican II when we did, you know, for different reasons. I'm not blaming those who did it, but uh, we kind of softened the operation in many ways. We did rather feminize the, the language and style. And men, I think, respond to being challenged. They want hard, difficult things to do. They want a sense of mission and purpose. Um, and I think we got pretty bad at doing that. We, You know, Brent, I'll tell you exactly what it was. The instinct, you know, we, we better be as kind of nice and, and inviting as we can, otherwise they're going to run away. We're going to lose the young people unless we, you know, make it as easy for them as possible. Well, of course, it's this I irony that it had the opposite effect. That's, in a way, why they ran away, that we didn't make it hard and challenging. This goes back many years. My mother, I remember saying this, uh, we were at Mass, we were, we were kids at the time, and it was the, um, the Passion reading, right? And the priest got up and said, you know, everybody, don't feel obligated to stand during this whole thing. If you want to sit, you know, during it's, I know it's long and it's, it's a lot to listen to, so sit down if you want to. And we got home, my mother said, kind of shaking her head, and she said, when, when I was a, a little girl, we were told, stand and don't move during the Passion <laughs> reading because you're meant to participate in the suffering of Jesus. And so to try to be as still as you can. Now, okay, say it's a silly example, but... It was the church willing to call people to something more challenging and say, look, this thing is meant to be hard. Something we, you know, in my experience, we've, I don't know if it's true for you, Brandon, but we've kind of done away with on Good Friday when we do the petitions. There's that rhythm of, of kneeling and then standing. Well, you know, it's hard. I don't want to over-dramatize it, but there's a lot of these petitions. I don't know how about 20 or so right, that we do. And kneel and then stand and then kneel. And then stand. But of course, the whole idea was you're participating in the suffering of Jesus. It's Good Friday. You know? It's meant to be hard. But very often I'd say people, oh, well, you know, that's, that's a little much. Let's not have people do all that kneeling, standing stuff. That's too hard for them. I think that instinct pushed a lot of young men away. Still does. Um, as Peterson said, correctly, I think, make it harder. Make it more demanding, and young men will find it more enticing. You mentioned already Jordan Peterson a couple times. I want to ask you about the so-called Jordan Peterson phenomenon. And here, I'm not specifically talking about his political or cultural activity. We can disagree with him on all sorts of things, but I want to focus specifically on his biblical lectures on YouTube and his philosophical self-help books, such as 12 Rules for Life, which was a massive bestseller, millions and millions of copies sold. Um, both of those things, the biblical lectures on YouTube and his books, are very, very popular among young men. He's clearly struck a chord. Um, he's discovered a way to present the scriptures and basic moral philosophy to many people. Why do you think he's been so successful as a spiritual guide to young men? What does he do right? Because in a, not in a total sense, because you know the Bible has so many different dimensions to it. And, and uh, I don't know if, if Jordan is there yet when it comes to the kind of deepest or highest kind of mystical dimension of the Bible. 
But when it comes to the moral sense, and that's what the church fathers would have called it, the moral sense of Scripture, that it's calling us to a renewed life. He's darn good at that, I think. And he lets the Bible be the Bible. How many times when I was growing up did sermons emphasize how good we are, uh, how loved we are, uh, you're, you're okay, you know, God loves you. And where the Bible, you know, having, again, been rather immersed in the last many years doing all these commentaries, man, the Bible is a, is a rough text in many ways. It is a really challenging text. I'm working as we speak right now on the, on the prophet Jeremiah. You think like, you know, I'm okay, you're okay, and God loves you, everything's going to be fine. Then read the, any page, any paragraph of the book of Jeremiah, and you'll find that completely contradicted. Peterson, I think, has put his finger on the deep moral demand. I call it this, the deep spiritual honesty of the Bible. It's telling us very profound truths, often difficult truths to take in about ourselves and then calling us to something really heroic. Well, look who comes to his lectures. People are running away from the churches. They're running toward people like him. Uh, and please don't, I, the people on the left drive me crazy on this, that, oh, he's some kind of fascist, you know, neo-Nazi. That's, that's all um, self, call it exculpating nonsense. It's their way of, of making excuses for their own failure. No, no, Peterson is naming something very real and very true, and young people are responding to it, especially young men. And I, I'm, not, I'm not surprised by that. They, they like, call it spiritual honesty and moral challenge, and he's, he's providing both of those. The author of this article I referenced, Shane Morris, highlights three figures that he thinks represent this movement. So Peterson is one of them. The other two are Ryan Holiday and Jaco Willink. Ryan Holiday has become well-known for popularizing the Stoics. He's written several books that are used by NFL coaches and executives and uh, upstart CEOs. Uh, and then Jaco Willink is a former Navy SEAL who has written lots of books on discipline and responsibility in life. Um, Shane Morris, the author, says, if we had to distill the message common to all three of these figures, Peterson, Willink, Holiday, he said it might be this twofold teaching. First, the good life, eudaimonia, is a virtuous one based on lasting moral principles that forge meaning in the crucible of suffering. And two, each individual is called out of nihilism and hedonism to take responsibility and live such a life. I'd like your thoughts on each of those two teachings. So let's begin with the first one. Again, the good life is a virtuous one based on lasting moral principles that forge meaning in the crucible of suffering. What do you think about that? It's right out of uh, Aristotle. You know, I, when I was a young guy, Robert Sokolowski took us through the Nicomachean Ethics of Aristotle, which is one of the great books in the whole Western tradition. And that's Aristotle's point of view, you know, is that we... We're all seeking happiness. That's where that word eudaimonia in Greek comes from. It means like having a good demon in you, eudaimonia. It's you have a good spirit. Where does it come from? Aristotle says it comes from, um, from the virtues. Where do the virtues come from? They come from habituation. So it's by doing the virtuous thing, even when I don't fully understand it, even when I'm not the master of it, but I'm, I'm going to do the virtuous thing over and over and over again until it works its way into my mind, my soul, my body. And then I become habituated to virtue, and I become thereby a virtuous person, which means I do the right thing more or less effortlessly. That's what it means to be a virtuous person. Um, most people fall into the vicious camp, which means we tend to do the wrong thing easily. <laughs> so I, that's what a vicious person is. Uh, I vice has so found its way into my body and mind and soul that I easily fall into it. So it's through habituation and moral education and above all for Aristotle, the example of the good man. See, that's where he's different from a purely Socratic or Platonic view that would say, no, just clarify the good and people will do it. The reason they, they don't do good things is they don't understand. And Aristotle was much more of a realist than Plato and, and said, sure, that's part of it. But it's things like habituation and the modeling provided by a good person that draws me more and more into the stance of virtue. So our great tradition, as you know, Brandon, has 
largely accepted the Aristotelian uh, framework. We would speak happily of the natural virtues, or the cardinal virtues are called sometimes. Uh, cardo means hinge. They're the hinge virtues, right, upon which your life turns. And they include justice, uh, temperance, etc. right? So th that framework, yeah, our great tradition says, yes, we affirm that. Now, just to anticipate, but we also say something else. See, so th that's, I, as, even as I affirm what you just said there and, and the way it was defined, I'm also, as a, as a Catholic bishop and theologian, I'm, I'm going to draw back a bit, too, because the church adds something of enormous importance. Maybe we'll, we'll get there. I want to ask you about the last few words of that first principle, that um, these moral principles forge meaning in the crucible of suffering. It strikes me that that's, that's answering this, this quandary that a lot of young men have today. How do I respond to the sufferings and failures of life? And this, this is giving them some sort of answer. Well, let me say this, too, about suffering. Uh, so for Aristotle, I would say the hinge virtue is, is justice, which is like doing the right thing, or it's giving to each his due. Right? So right now, we're treating each other with respect. That's an act of justice, because I owe that to you. It's due to you. If I start treating you with contempt, I'm not acting justly. Well, in the course of the day, everything I do should be just. It should be rendering to others what's due to them. Okay. Now, justice is threatened from the inside and from the outside. From the inside, my own disordered uh, nature threatens justice. So I know I should be kind to that person, but he really bugs me. You know, I really get mad at him. So my anger is now getting in the way of my doing the just thing. Or my, uh, my lust or, or whatever it is is blocking me from doing the right thing. So what do I need? I need temperance. That's the virtue that controls the threat that comes from inside of me, right? Now, the other threat comes from the outside. So I know I should do this, but if I do, I'm going to get attacked. Or I'll go on a battlefield. I know I should be defending my country, but if I do, I'm going to be in danger of losing my life. Uh, now external threats to justice are occurring. What do I need? Courage to face them down. So do suffering both from the outside and from the inside. So in the crucible of suffering through courage and temperance, I'm now conditioned to do the just or the right thing. The last virtue being prudence, which is just, it's, it's moral know-how. So, I mean, how do I know what the right thing to do in this present circumstance is? That's prudence. But I would, I would put the suffering thing under, under the rubric of temperance and, and uh, courage. Let's look at that second key Stoic teaching represented by these three figures here it is, each individual is called out of nihilism and hedonism to take responsibility and live such a good life. Shane Morris, the author, writes later in the piece that men strongly resonate with the philosophy in which their individual choices and actions really matter. And Stoicism teaches this, that you should do what's right regardless of how it feels or regardless of, of who knows it. Thoughts about this teaching? Yeah, again, that's classical Aristotelianism, too. And, and the church affirms that. And then our, our choices matter. Um, go back here to John Paul II, you know, that when I make a moral choice, I'm choosing to do a particular moral thing, but I'm also in that very act helping to create my character. So with each act, so even the two of us right now being kind to each other, that's in a positive way creating our character, right? We're becoming more and more the people we want to be. When I choose wrongly, I'm doing a wrong thing, but I'm also unmaking myself. Right? I'm also unraveling myself, producing a bad character. So do our choices matter? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in becoming the people that, that I would say God wants us to be, you know, uh, which is now introducing an, another element of this thing. But as far as it goes... I think all this natural level, yeah, I affirm all that. And see, it's much needed because we live, and that's the, the nihilistic thing. There are no values. I just make it up as I go along. Uh, don't tell me what to do. I'm my own boss. See, all of that is just deadly. As I've often said, it's like saying, just give me that five iron and I'll swing it any way I want to. And Well, you'll be the worst golfer in America, right? Uh, Give me that violin. Don't tell me how to play it. I'll just, I'll just figure it out. 
unless you're a genius. Maybe you're a genius. By the way, Aristotle called that a godlike man. It's very interesting. He had that category that there might be a godlike man that doesn't even need to be habituated because he just is, he's virtuous off the scale. But they said, look, that's, that's so rare, let's not even bother talking about it, right? So it, 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 we can fall into that sort of weird, like, just give me the violin because I, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm Itzhak Perlman by some miracle. No, but 99.9% of us need a lot of habituation in order to internalize the virtues of playing a violin. Same with the moral life, which is why nihilism and all that is, is a complete disaster. What's hedonism? But well, I, just what makes me, what gives me pleasure, that's all that matters. Well, yeah, then you'll live like a child. That's the way a three-year-old lives. You know, that's why we have to discipline kids and move them along. You know that, raising your own kids. If we just left them to their own devices, they'd be 30-year-old hedonists. Plenty of them, by the way, right? There are plenty of them, by the way, in the world that were never disciplined, never brought into a moral consciousness. And so just please me, whatever gives me pleasure. Those are both moral disasters. And people suffer from both of those things. I agree with that. Nihilism, hedonism, you will suffer from that. What liberates you is precisely the path of virtue and, and the modeling provided by a good person, you know, who will tell you to shape up. Look at, Brandon, in our Western tradition, Eastern too, Look in the Buddhist traditions, the importance of a spiritual guide, of a spiritual mentor. Look at Virgil with Dante. You know, there's somebody that is guiding you along the spiritual path. Uh, no, no, I'm okay. You're okay. I make my own mind. I decide what good and evil are. Yeah, good luck with that program. I don't want to put words in your own mouth, but it seems like one thing you're gesturing toward is that we as a church and we as a culture have dropped the the ball when it comes to providing mentors into masculinity. Yeah. It strikes me that these names we've already mentioned, Ryan Holiday, Jaco Willink, uh, Jordan Peterson, the author adds a few more later in his article, Joe Rogan, Tim Ferriss, and Brett yeah. McKay, whom you recently spoke with on his oh, yeah. Manliness yeah, yeah. podcast. All of these men are filling a gap yeah. that we have that whether you know young men didn't have father figures or priest figures or adult male friends, whatever the case, they lacked that initiation, that mentorship that maybe past generations received. Yeah, and the proof's in the pudding. You know, the very fact that these people are attracting a, a lot of young men to them, that proves it. You know, I, I don't know if you remember, Brandon, I've ever seen this movie, uh, Boys Town from 1940, I think. Spencer Tracy plays Father Flanagan, right, the founder of Boys Town. Oh, yeah. And the other star of the movie is, is a young, very young Mickey Rooney, and he's this tough street kid, you know. And the movie is all about how Father Flanagan, this, you know, in, in a way, mild-mannered priest and, and good-hearted priest, but was a very tough mentor to this street kid and brought him to the point of virtue. But it was the priest as, as moral hero, you know, not as, hey, you're just great. His name was Whitey, the kid. You're just great, Whitey. Everything you say and do is wonderful. I affirm you in every way. Hey, tell me how you feel about this. There wasn't an ounce of that. It was a, it was a, a tough, demanding priest who was leading this kid. And watch the movie, the, the, the great Spencer Tracy, who won the Academy Award that year for uh, uh, his role. Um, watch him work. Watch how a mentor does his work. And I think we have largely lost that. I want to bring this back to Christianity for a moment. In his article, Shane Morris tell, has a, a telling anecdote. He says, quote, The contrast between Stoicism and the attitude common in churches today is hard to miss. I think of a friend who started a Friday morning book study with other Christian men who felt they needed more than they were getting in church in terms of understanding specific ways that Christ's manhood could inform theirs. He observed that the goal of men's Bible studies often feels suspiciously like replicating women's Bible studies, complete with frequent expressions of vulnerability and emotional intimacy. For my friend, he says, the problem was simple. The call to be like Jesus often sounded like a call to be less of a man. And as he explained at this inaugural Friday study, all the men around him agreed. Um, that seems to me to raise an important question. Is there is there something distinct about the way men are called to follow Christ as yeah. disciples? We've seen yeah. lots of men's groups, conferences. I think of Exodus 90, the ascetical yeah. program in the church. What else can we be doing to disciple men in particular? 
Well, all the, everything we've talked about, but I think to your question, yes. And we should avoid, you know, easy stereotypes, you know. Of course, there's, there's variations within this. But generally speaking, yes, men don't like sitting in a circle sharing their feelings. Uh, men prefer, I think, a challenge. They like to be given something hard to do, um, summoned to mission and action. I think men respond to that more readily. Again, generally speaking, all that. Um, so I think everything we've talked about would be valuable if you want to get men more involved. Um, be harder, not softer. Um, be more demanding, not less demanding. Uh, go against the instinct that says, oh, God, you know, get the kids or get the, the young high school kids. we got to really bend over. No, no, backwards. I'd say no. On the contrary, challenge them. Challenge them. Um, bring them on a, on a um, hike in the woods or something, you know, and have them do something that's physically demanding. Um, and then give them a, a moral and spiritual challenge. I, I think men would respond better to that. Read, you know what's good on that is Dr. Sachs, um, Leonard Sachs, who wrote these books on, on girls and boys and men and women. And, um, you know, has articulated psychologically how men and women are, are very different in the way they respond to things. But can I, are we, are we running out of time, Brandon, because I, I do want to make no, a, I, I think a very important point here. Having said all of that and, and not gainsaying a bit of it, right? so I, I affirm everything we've just been saying, the, the, the danger is this, and it's a very old problem. Uh, St. Augustine wrestled with it. The danger is Pelagianism. Right? So Pelagius, who taught at the same time as Augustine, you know, uh, I know we're, we're all sinners and we're all fallen, but with enough get up and go and decision and, and you know, do the right thing, um, you know, we can, we can save ourselves. We can find our way forward. Just, you know, um, uh, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and, and be a morally upright person and, and you'll be okay. And see, Augustine, one of his signal contributions was to speak against Pelagius. Now, why? Because if Pelagius is right, then we don't need a savior. If Pelagius is right, and, and Pelagius has a million descendants up and down the centuries to the present day. And see, I, I'm not going to uh, give that title to the people we've been talking about, but that's the shadow. That's the shadow. It's a Pelagian shadow. Is I can save myself. Follow these steps, and you'll be a, a happy, a upright person. Go back to Romans chapter 7, and Augustine was deeply indebted to Paul, as you know. The good that I would do, that's what I don't do. And the evil that I would avoid, that's what I do. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul asks. Answer, Jesus Christ, my Savior. See, Paul, coming out of the great biblical tradition, understood something that none of the ancient philosophers did. The ancient philosophers believed, to varying degrees, in programs of perfectibility, right? So Plato, just get your thoughts straightened out and, and you'll be good. Aristotle, well, yeah, figure thoughts out, but then get yourself habituated to virtue and you'll become virtuous. But no one in the biblical framework thinks it's as simple as that. So even as we affirm that moral tradition, the, the virtues and habit and all those good things, it's got to be placed in a wider uh, spiritual context, which deeply acknowledges my own um, incapacity, my, my own inability to save myself. I cannot, by an act of the will, save myself because the will is the problem. It's like um, revving an engine. The engine's not working. Just, just try it again. Just try it again. Just try it again. You won't until the will is saved. And, and I play with that before. You know, the word save is related to salus in Latin and salve, which means health to you, right? And that's like the word salve. There has to be a healing at a very fundamental level before these virtues can really be exercised and come to life. Um, in a word, the natural virtues have to be elevated, supernaturalized by the theological virtues, faith, hope, and love, right? 
See, what's faith? Faith is now opening my life to a transcendent dimension, to God. I, I, I can't solve this problem on my own. It, the more I try, the worse it's going to be. The, the 12-step programs have it exactly right when they say you've got to surrender your life to a higher power. Now, I think that higher power has a name. I get more specific. But uh, faith. What's hope? Well, hope is something that, that natural virtue won't give you. Plato didn't know about hope. Neither did Aristotle. Hope is now the ordering of my life in its totality toward the transcendent, right? And then finally, love. What's love? This willing the good of the other. Notice how that goes beyond justice. Justice rendering to each his due. Okay, okay. Love, though, is, is the radicalization of that. See, my point is... There has to be this surrender to grace, grace. And then grace can transfigure the whole of my life. And I can take all the stuff we've been talking about, and now it's raised up to a, to a higher pitch, and I can find my salvation there. But the, I guess the shadow of, of Peterson, Willink, and company, and, and Aristotle, would be Pelagianism. So, yeah, we want to avoid this... Um, Let's sit around and share our feeling stuff. Um, but we also want to avoid Pelagianism. And, and it's on that, in that space. Now read Aquinas if you want the whole treatment. Read Aquinas on the virtues. That's the space we got to move into. So welcome back again to part three of our podcast uh, for this week here on Common Sea Inspirations. My name is John Keeley. At this point of our podcast is a section where we read and reflect on the Word of God, the Sunday Gospel. And before that, we'll pray this prayer before reading and reflecting on Scripture. Lord, we thank you for putting us in the presence of your Word, which you inspired in your prophets. May we approach this Word reverently, attentively and humbly. May we not despise this word, but receive all it has to say to us. We know that our hearts are closed, often incapable of comprehending the simplicity of your word. Send your spirit to us, so that receiving the word in truth and simplicity, our lives may be transformed by it. Let us not be resistant, Lord. May your word penetrate us like a two-edged sword. May our hearts be open to it. Let not our eyes be closed, nor our minds wonder. But may we give ourselves entirely to this listening. We ask this, Father, in union with Mary, who used to recite the Psalms, 
through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So now we can read the Gospel for today for the 19th Sunday in Ordinary Time. It's taken from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14, verse 22 to 33. Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead on to the other side while he would send the crowds away. After sending the crowds away, he went up the hills by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, while the boat, by now far out on the lake, was battling with the heavy sea, for there was a headwind. In the fourth watch of the night, he went towards them, saying, Courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. It was Peter who answered, Lord, he said, If it is you, tell me to come to you across the water. Come, said Jesus. Then Peter got into the boat and started walking towards Jesus across the water. But as soon as he felt the force of the wind, he took fright and began to sink. Lord, save me, he cried. Jesus put his hand out at once and held him. Man of little faith, he said, why do you doubt? And as they got into the boat, the wind dropped. The men in the boat bowed down before him and said, Truly, you are the Son of God. So that's the Gospel for today, for the 19th Sunday in Ordinary Time, taken from the Gospel of Matthew. A little reflection today. Uh, this is taken from uh, Pope Francis, actually. Father Frank Duick shared it with us during the week. And it's Pope Francis is one of Pope Francis's uh, reflections on today's Gospel. Pope Francis, in this, gospel, in this reflection on this Gospel, sees it as an invitation to look at our faith its depth, a lack of depth. Pope Francis said, This gospel narrative contains rich symbolism and makes us reflect on our faith, both as individuals and as a church community. How is the faith in each of us and the faith of our community? The boat is the life of each one of us, but it's also the life of the church. The wind against it represents the difficulties and trials. Peter's invocation, Lord, tell me to come to you across the water, and his cry, Lord, save me, are very similar to our desire to feel the Lord's closeness, but also express the real fear and anguish that accompany the most difficult moments of our lives. Pope Francis goes on, Jesus, the word of insurance, was not enough for Peter. This is what could happen to us as well, when one does not cling to the word of God, come to feel secure. Today's gospel reminds us that the faith in the Lord and his word does not open a way for us where everything is easy and calm. It does not rescue us from life storms. Faith gives us the assurance of presence, the presence of Jesus, the certainty of a hand that grabs hold of us, so as to face the difficulties pointing the way for us even when it's dark. Faith, in short, is not an escape route from life's problems, but it sustains the journey and gives its meaning. little reflection there from Pope Francis for this week. So maybe, maybe to finish off our podcast for today, a nice piece of music maybe, give us time to reflect on the wonderful words of the Gospel. It's by the Maranatha singers, and this one is entitled, Jesus, What a Wonder You Are. So next week, thank you again for joining us. Enjoy the week, and we'll do it all again next week. In the meantime, bye-bye now.